Chapter 9 of The Countess of Rodelstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rodelstadt by George Sand, translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter 9. Since that day, continued the porporina, I have not again seen the king in my apartments, but he has sometimes ordered me to Sanssouci, where I have even passed several days in succession with my comrades, Porporino and Consiolini, and here to play upon the harpsichord in his little concerts and accompany the violin of Monsieur Grouse or that of Bender or the flute of Monsieur Cannes, or finally, the king himself, which is much less agreeable than to accompany the others, said the princess of Prussia, for I know by experience that my dear brother, when he makes false notes or fails in the measure, blames those who are playing with him and quarrels with them. It is true, replied the poor Perina, and his skillful master, Monsieur Cannes himself, is not always safe from his little injustices. But his majesty, when he has allowed himself to be carried away in this manner, soon repairs his fault by acts of deference and delicate praises, which shed balm upon wounded self-love. It is thus that, by an affectionate word, a single admiring exclamation, he succeeds in causing his harshness and his bursts of passion to be forgiven, even by artists, the most susceptible people in the world. But you, after all that you know of him, and with your modest integrity, could you permit yourself to be fascinated by this royal basilisk? I will confess to you, madam, that I have often experienced the charm of his fascination without perceiving it, as such little tricks have always been unknown to me. I am always their dupe, and it is only on reflection that I afterwards guess them. I have also seen the king often upon the stage, and even sometimes in my box after the performance. He has always shown a fatherly kindness towards me, but I have been alone with him only two or three times in the garden of Sanssouci, and I must confess that it was after having watched for the hour of his promenade and placed myself in his way on purpose. He then called me or came courteously to meet me, and I seized the opportunity to speak to him of Porpora and to renew my request. I have always received the same promises without ever seeing any result. Recently I have changed my tactics and asked permission to return to Vienna, but the king has heard my prayer sometimes with affectionate reproaches, sometimes with a freezing coldness, and more frequently with decided ill humor. This last attempt, in fine, has not been more successful than the others, and even when the king has dryly replied to me, Go, mademoiselle, you are free. I obtained neither a settlement of my accounts nor a passport for permission to travel. Matters have remained in this position, and I see no other remedy but flight if my situation here becomes too difficult to bear. Alas, madam, I was often wounded by Maria Therese's want of taste for music. 
I did not then imagine that a music-mad king was more to be feared than an empress without ear. I have given to you a sketch of my relations with his majesty. I never had occasion to fear or even to suspect that caprice of loving me which your highness attributes to him. Only I have sometimes had the pride to think that, thanks to my small musical talent and to the romantic circumstances in which I had the honor to save his life, the king felt a kind of friendship for me. He has told me this so often, and with an air of such sincere frankness, he has seemed to take such a good-natured pleasure in conversing with me, that I have become accustomed, unwittingly perhaps, and certainly in spite of myself, to love him also, with a species of friendship. The word is a strange one, and doubtless misplaced in my mouth, but the feeling of affectionate respect and of timid confidence with which I am inspired by the presence, the look, the voice, and the gentle words of this royal basilisk, as you call him, is as peculiar as it is sincere. We are here to say everything, and it is agreed that I shall hesitate at nothing. Well, I declare that the king causes me fear, almost horror, when I do not see him, and when I breathe the rarefied air of his empire. But that, when I do see him, I am under the charm, and ready to give him all the proofs of devotedness which a timid but pious child can give to a severe but good father. You make me tremble, cried the princess. If you should allow yourself to be domineered over, or cajoled so far as to betray our cause? Oh, as to that, madam, never. Have no fear. In whatever concerns my friends or even other persons, I defy the king, and even those more skillful, if such there be, to entrap me. I believe you. You exercise upon me by your air of frankness the same fascination which you experience on the part of Frederick. Come, do not be troubled. I do not compare you with him. Resume your story and tell me of Cagliostro. I have been told that at a magical exhibition he showed you a dead person, whom I suppose to have been Count Albert. I am ready to satisfy you, noble Amelia, but if I resolve upon relating to you yet another painful adventure, which I could wish to forget, I have the right to address to you some questions, according to the agreement we made. I am ready to answer you. Well, madam, do you believe that the dead can leave the tomb, or at least that a reflection of their form, animated by the appearance of life, can be evoked at the will of magicians, and seize upon our imagination so far as to be reproduced before our eyes and to disturb our reason? The question is a very complicated one, and all that I can answer is that I believe in nothing which is impossible. I believe no more in the power of magic than in the resurrection of the dead. As to our poor foolish imagination, I believe that capable of everything. Your Highness, forgive me. You do not believe in magic, and yet, but the question is indiscreet without doubt. Finish, and yet I am addicted to magic. That is well known. Well, my child, allow me to explain to you this strange inconsistency. 
only at some more proper time and place. From the parchment sent by the sorcerer St. Germain, which was, in reality, a letter from Trank for me, you can already have guessed that this pretended necromancy may serve as a cover for many things. But to reveal to you all that it conceals from the spies of court and from the tyranny of laws would not be the work of an instant. Be patient. I have resolved to initiate you into all my secrets. You deserve this more than my dear Decleist, who is a timid and superstitious creature. Yes, such as you see her, that angel of goodness, that tender heart, absolutely wants common sense. She believes in sorcerers, in ghosts and fortune tellers, the same as though she had not before her eyes and in her hands the mysterious moving strings of the great work. She is like the alchemists of past times, who patiently and skillfully created monsters and were afterwards affrighted at their own work, so far as to become the slaves of some familiar demon proceeding from their alembic. Perhaps I should not be more courageous than Madame de Kleist, returned the Borborina, and I confess that I have before my eyes a specimen of the power, if not of the infallibility of Cascliostro. Imagine that, after having promised to make me see the person of whom I was thinking, and whose name he apparently pretended to read in my eyes, he showed me another, and still, while showing him to me alive, he appeared entirely ignorant that he was dead. But in spite of this double error, he resuscitated before my eyes the husband whom I have lost. This will always be to me a sad and terrible enigma. He showed you the reflection of someone, and your imagination did the rest. I can assure you that my imagination had nothing whatever to do with it. I expected to see in a glass or behind a gauze a portrait of Master Parpora, for I had spoken of him several times at supper, and, while loudly deploring his absence, had noticed that Monsieur de Cagliostro paid attention to my words. To render his task more easy, I chose, in my thought, the figure of Porpora as the subject of the apparition, and I expected it firmly, not considering this trial as serious until then. In fine, if there has been a single moment in my life for a year in which I did not think of Monsieur de Rodelstadt, it was precisely that one. Monsieur Cagliostro asked, on entering his magical laboratory with me, if I would consent to be blindfolded and to follow him holding his hand. As I knew him to be a man of good reputation, I did not hesitate to accept his offer and only made it a condition that he should not leave me for an instant. I was about, said he, to beseech you not to withdraw from me a single step, and not to let go my hand, whatever may happen, whatever emotion you may experience. I promised this, but a simple affirmation was not sufficient. He made me solemnly swear that I would not make a gesture nor an exclamation. In fine, that I would remain mute and impassive during the apparition. Then he put on his glove, 
and, after having covered my head with a hood of black velvet, which fell as low as my shoulders, he made me walk about five minutes without my hearing any door open or shut. The hood prevented my perceiving any change in the atmosphere, as I could not know if I had left the laboratory. So many turnings and windings did he make me take, in order to deprive me of all knowledge of the direction we were pursuing. At last he stopped, and with one hand took off the hood so lightly that I did not perceive it. My breathing becoming more free, alone informed me that I had the liberty of looking. But I was in such thick darkness that I was not much better informed. Little by little, nevertheless, I saw a luminous star, at first vacillating and feeble, but soon clear and brilliant, displayed before me. At first it seemed very far off, and when it reached its full brightness, it appeared to me quite near. That was the effect, I think, of a light more or less intense behind a transparency. Cagliostro made me approach this star, which was a hole pierced in the wall, and on the other side of that wall I saw a strangely decorated chamber, filled with tapers placed in a symmetrical order. That apartment had, in its ornaments and arrangement, all the appearance of a place intended for magical operations. But I had no time to examine it much. My attention was engrossed by a person seated before a table. He was alone, and had his face hidden in his hands as if plunged in deep meditation. I could not see his features, and his figure was disguised by a dress which I had never before seen worn by anyone. As well as I could distinguish, it was a robe, or rather a mantle, of white satin, trimmed with purple and fastened upon the breast by hieroglyphic jewels worked in gold, among which I distinguished a rose, a cross, a death's head, and several rich cords of various colors. All that I could understand was that this was not porphyra, but after one or two minutes, that mysterious personage, whom I began to take for a statue, slowly moved his hands, and I distinctly saw the face of Count Albert, not such as I had seen it the last time, but animated in its paleness and full of soul in its serenity, such in fine as I had admired him in his most beautiful hours of calmness and confidence. I was about to utter a cry and to break, by an involuntary movement, the glass which separated me from him. But a violent pressure of Cogliostro's hand recalled to me my oath, and excited in me, I know not, what vague terror. Besides, at the same instant, a door opened at the extremity of the apartment in which I saw Albert, and several unknown personages, dressed almost like him, entered sword in hand. After having made various singular gestures, as if they were playing a pantomime, they addressed to him, each in his turn, and with a solemn tone, some incomprehensible words. He rose, walked towards them, and answered them in words equally obscure, which presented no meaning to my mind, although I now know the German as well as my mother tongue. This dialogue resembled those we hear in dreams, and the strangeness of this scene, the marvelousness of this apparition, seemed like a dream, 
so much so that I endeavored to move in order to be sure that I was not asleep. But Cagliostro compelled me to remain motionless, and I recognized Albert's voice so perfectly that it was impossible to doubt the reality of what I saw. Finally, carried away by the desire of speaking to him, I was about to forget my oath when the black hood again fell over my head. I tore it off with violence, but the crystal star was already effaced, and all was again darkness. If you make the least movement, hollowly murmured Cagliostro in my ear with a trembling voice, neither you nor I will ever see the light again. I had strength enough to follow him and to walk some time with him in zigzags through an unknown void. At last, when he finally took off the hood, I found myself again in his laboratory, dimly lighted, as it was at the commencement of this adventure. Cagliostro was very pale and still trembled, for I had felt, while walking with him, that his arm was agitated by a convulsive shiver, and that he made me walk very fast, as if he were affected by great fear. The first words he addressed to me were bitter reproaches upon my want of good faith, and upon the horrible dangers to which I had exposed him by seeking to violate my promise. I ought to have recollected, added he in a harsh and angry tone, that the word of honor of women does not bind them, and that one must be cautious in yielding to their vain and rash curiosity. Until then, I had not thought of sharing the terrors of my guide. I had been so struck with the idea of finding Albert alive that I had not asked myself if this was humanly possible. I had even forgotten that death had forever removed from me, that friend so precious and so dear. The agitation of the magician at last reminded me that all this was miraculous and that I had seen a specter. Still my reason repelled the impossible, and the sharpness of Cagliostro's reproaches excited in me a diseased irritation which saved me from weakness. "'You pretend to take your own lies in earnest,' said I to him sharply, "'but you play a very cruel joke. "'You play with the most holy things, with death itself.' "'Soul without faith and without strength,' replied he angrily, "'but with an imposing expression.' You believe in death as do the vulgar, and yet you have had a great master, a master who has said to you a hundred times, man does not die, nothing dies, there is no such thing as death. You accuse me of lying, and you seem to forget that the only lie there is here is the very name of death in your mouth. I confess to you that this strange reply confused all my ideas, and for an instant overcame all the resistance of my troubled mind. How could this man know so well my connection with Albert, and even the secret of his doctrine? Did he share his belief, or did he make of it a weapon in order to acquire an ascendancy over my imagination? I remained confused and cast down, but I soon said to myself that this gross manner of interpreting Albert's belief could not be mine and that it depended upon God alone, and not upon the impostor Cagliostro, to evoke the dead or to restore life. Convinced, in fine, that I was the dupe of an inexplicable illusion, 
but of which I should perhaps discover the solution at some future day. I rose, praising the sorcerer for his skill, and asking him with a little irony, an explanation of the strange discourse held by those shadows among themselves. Thereupon he answered me that it was impossible for him to satisfy me, and that I ought to be contented with having seen that person calm and usefully occupied. You will ask of me in vain, added he, what are his thoughts and his action in life? I am ignorant even of his name. When you thought of him, in asking of me to see him, there was formed between yourself and him a mysterious communication, which my power has been able to render effective so far as to bring him before you. My science extends no further. Your science, said I, does not extend so far, for I thought of Master Porpora, and it was not Master Porpora whom your power called up. I know nothing of that, replied he, with a frightful gravity. I wish to know nothing. I saw nothing, either in your thought or in the magic tablet. My reason could not endure such a spectacle, and I must preserve all my clearness of mind in order to exercise my power. But the laws of science are infallible, and you must necessarily, though perhaps unconsciously, have thought of some other person besides Master Porpora, since it is not he whom you have seen. Such are the fine words of all those fools, said the princess, shrugging her shoulders. Each of them has his peculiar style of proceeding, but all, by means of a certain captious reasoning which may be called the logic of madness, manage never to be in the wrong, and with their great words to confuse the senses of others. Mine were certainly confused, returned Consuelo, and I no longer possess the faculty of analyzing. That apparition of Albert, whether real or false, made me feel more sensibly the grief of having forever lost him, and I burst into tears. Consuelo, said the magician in a solemn tone, presenting his hand to conduct me out, and you may well imagine that my real name, unknown to everyone here, caused me a fresh surprise, coming from his lips. You have great faults to make amends for, and I hope that you will neglect no means to recover the peace of your conscience. I had not strength enough to answer him. I attempted in vain to conceal my tears from my comrades, who were impatiently waiting for me in the neighboring saloon. I was still more impatient to retire, and as soon as I found myself alone, after having given free scope to my sorrow, I passed the night lost in reflections and comments upon the events of that fatal evening. The more I tried to comprehend them, the more I was lost in a labyrinth of uncertainties, and I must confess that my suppositions were often more crazy and more diseased than would have been a blind belief in the oracles of magic. Fatigued by this fruitless labor, I resolved to suspend my judgment until I received more light. But since that time, I have remained impressible, subject to nervous attacks, sick at heart and profoundly sad. I did not feel the loss of my friend more vividly than before, but the remorse which his generous pardon had assuaged in me tormented me continually, exercising without obstacles my profession as an artist, 
The frivolous excitements of success soon cloyed me, and moreover in this country, where the mind of man seems as gloomy as the climate, and as despotism added the abbess. In this country where I feel myself saddened and chilled, I soon discovered that I could not make the progress of which I had dreamed. And what progress do you then wish to make? We have never heard anyone who approached you, and I do not believe that a more perfect cantatrice exists in the world. I say what I think, and this is not a compliment a la Frederick. Even if your highness be not mistaken, of which I am by no means certain, added Consuelo, smiling, for, excepting the Romanina and the Tisi, I have never heard any other cantatrice than myself. I think there is always much to attempt and something to be attained, beyond all that has been done. Well, that ideal which I conceived in myself, I might have approximated to in a life of action, of struggle, of daring enterprise, of partaken sympathies, of enthusiasm, in one word. But the cold regularity which prevails here, the soldier-like order established even in the wings of the stage, the calm and continued benevolence of an audience which thinks of its own business while listening to us, the high protection of the king, which guarantees to us a success already decided on, the absence of rivalry, of novelty in the persons of the artists and the choice of works, and especially the idea of an indefinite captivity. All this citizen's life, coldly industrious, sadly glorious, and necessarily covetous, which we lead in Prussia, has deprived me of all hope and even of the desire of perfecting myself. There are some days on which I feel so deprived of energy and so devoid of that pleasing self-love which assists the conscientiousness of an artist that I would pay for a hiss to rouse me. But alas, whether I fail in my opening or am exhausted before the end of my task, I receive always the same applauses. They give me no pleasure when I do not deserve them. They grieve me when, by chance, I do deserve them, but they are then quite as officially counted, quite as much measured by etiquette as usual and yet I feel that I have merited more spontaneous ones. All this must seem childish to you, noble Amelia, but you desire to know the whole of an actress's soul, and I conceal nothing from you. You explain it so naturally that I conceive it as if I experienced it myself. I am capable to do you a service of hissing you when I see you torpid, with the intention of throwing to you a crown of roses, when I have roused you. Alas, good princess, neither the one nor the other would meet with the approbation of the king. The king does not wish his actors to be offended, because he knows that infatuation follows speedily after the hooting. My ennui is, therefore, without remedy, in spite of your generous intention. To this languor is added, each day more and more, the regret of having preferred a life so false and void of emotion to a life of love and devotedness. Since the adventure with Cagliostro especially, a black melancholy has seized upon my soul. Not a night passes, but I dream of Albert, and I again see him irritated against me, or indifferent and absent, 
speaking an incomprehensible language and engrossed by meditations entirely foreign to our love, as I saw him in the magic scene. I wake bathed in a cold sweat, and I weep on, thinking that in the new existence into which death had caused him to enter, his sorrowing and dismayed soul perhaps feels my disdain and my ingratitude. In fine, I did kill him, that is certain, and it is not possible for any man, had he made a compact with all the powers of heaven and hell, to reunite me to him. I can therefore remedy nothing in this useless and solitary life which I lead, and I have no other desire than to see its end. End of chapter 9